Welcome to this special Global Listening Project event. This video is premiering on our Global Health Diplomats and a Shot in the Arm podcast, Spotify, YouTube and LinkedIn channels. And of course, the audio is available directly to global audiences on Apple Podcasts and all good podcast platforms. I'm Ben Plumley here in Sacramento, California, and I'll be the host for this session. And joining us from the International Institute of Information Technology in Bengaluru, India, are the GLP's co-founder and chair of the Global Listening Project, Professor Heidi Larson. Heidi, welcome. Nice to see you, Ben. Joining Heidi, we have Prasada Rao, JVR, who is the former UN uh, Secretary General Special Envoy on HIV AIDS in the Asia-Pacific region and former Health Secretary of the uh, Government of India. Prasada is also a member of the Global Listening Project's International Advisory Board. Welcome, Prasada. Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much. And last, and by no means not least, Professor Balaji Parta Sarati. Now, Balaji, I hope I've got your surname pronounced correctly. That's fine. That'll do. <laughs> In other words, no. But, but you're founder of the uh, Institute's uh, Center for Information Technology and Public Policy. And a deep thanks to you for inviting us to this Institute's fantastic space. Although, of course, I can only uh, see it virtually. Now, for viewers and listeners, please do send comments and questions because Heidi and I will be devoting an upcoming uh, podcast, a sort of a question time podcast, to answer your questions and concerns. Now, the world faces a truly global trust crisis. And today, the Global Listening Project is kicking off an eight-month rollout of data from a global 70,000-plus people survey on how prepared they feel their societies are for future crises. And we will be discussing insights today from the study for global security, an issue of increasing concern as we enter 2024. Heidi, perhaps a bit of context first then. Going into COVID, what made you think you needed to be concerned more broadly than just vaccine confidence? Thanks, Ben. Well, after founding the Vaccine Confidence Project in 2010, um, 2020 was 10 years later, we had built a, a global network of researchers investing all the, investigating all the reasons that people were questioning and, and uh, some not taking vaccines. We uncovered many layers of trust that were not specific to the vaccine. And in the meanwhile, more and more people came to us from other disciplines, climate change, mental health, others, to ask us to help them with trust issues. So we were thinking about calling ourselves the Confidence Project, and then had the fortune for MacArthur Foundation to award us at the beginning of COVID uh, a grant on uh, addressing inequity and injustice in the context of, of COVID, COVID response and recovery. And that really helped us take our work beyond. And we started to look at all the different trust dynamics um, in the multiple interventions that were needed to protect the world from COVID. 
um, including vaccines, but as everybody knows, distancing, masking, multiple things, and for a long time. Uh, so that really helped. And, and then uh, GSK and Moderna uh, came and loved this concept because it was not about the product. It was about all the underlying issues and trust environment. And then uh, Gates Foundation, we were very grateful, supported us to take a special look at gender. Um, and it's been a fantastic uh, growth since then. And it's, it's trying to take the bigger issues of trust that are reported on left, right, and center, but try to make that understanding more granular so we can actually know where do you start building trust? Because to say they don't trust government, well, where is the issue? They don't trust media. Well, there's good media and bad media. There's good NGOs and bad, less, less good. So we need to find out more of the details, but from the people's perspective. And what I love in this project, it is very much from the start uh, informed by what people have told us around the world about their experiences. So you said it's not the uh, Global Confidence Project. Why listening? What is so important about listening? Well, we wanted to feature um, the listening because, to be honest, one of the things we've heard around the world just in our very early formative research was one of the biggest issues for people during COVID was they felt voiceless. People felt like they spent all their time following instructions and they weren't heard. Um, they had no voice. They were being told what to do continually. And they, the number of people that said, you actually care what we have to think about this was really striking. So it just was something that came to us, inspired us, and actually resonated. So we called it the Global Listening Project. It's not, and also I felt like listening itself was an intervention. People needed to talk about their, they wanted to talk about it. It helped them kind of process what they've been through. And it's not just listening for the sake of listening or for that moment of listening. It's very much to inform uh, where we need to build trust, what innovation we can build on. There was some fantastic uh, creativity and innovation in, in COVID as well as some, some broken trust, which... Um, we also learned about. So, Prasada, if I could come to you, you're a member of the International Advisory Board that has guided Heidi and the team uh, over the course of the last, gosh, 18 months or so. Um, what intrigues you? What captivates you about the Global Listening Project? But when I heard about the Global Listening Project and Heidi uh, um, sent me the concept note, I found um, that it's something new that is happening in the area of HIV, uh, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, in the in COVID. Because, um, you know, COVID had many facets. And being a member of the National Task Force on COVID for India, I could see uh, the entire um, response emerging from the word go. And something that was missing in the entire response was this particular thing called listening. I mean, it was a very top-down type of um, response that countries had. 
I mean, including India, I would say, whereas people were just like objects. They were not subjects. So unless you listen to them and, and know their perception of what is happening, whatever is happening, is it relevant to them? I mean, your response is not appropriate. And then I compared it with what happened in HIV 20 years back, where I think people were listened right from the word go. I think the entire response started with the people, with the communities. So that's what fascinated me. And all the time when I was working in the project, I was comparing the COVID response and the HIV response, and I found the contrast in the two. So that's what is absolutely fascinating in this particular project. Balaji, you are a, a global expert on uh, information, communication, and technology, um, and you you established the Center on ICT and and Public Policy at the Institute. Um, what do you think about the goals and objectives of the Global Listening Project? Um, listening as opposed to communicating. Yeah, <clears throat> I think this is something, uh, this is a, a compelling idea, uh, is what I'd say. And to sort of justify what I said, let me step back and give you a little bit about what I've done in the past and how I uh, sort of come to view this. I've, for a long time, you know, studied technology and its social implications, social consequences and impacts. And one of the things you know is that you know, technology doesn't play out identically among different social groups across national boundaries. Uh, so you willy-nilly have to take a comparative approach uh, if you want to understand the consequences of technology. You have to ask technology for who. And then once you ask that question, then you ask to, have to ask the question why, right? So you have to get to the bottom of that. The, so then you, you, you start to realize that technology, you know, you have to sort of start unpackaging it, right? And then look at not technology as technology alone, but then how it sort of filters through a set of institutions, national institutions, local institutions, individuals, right? So there is great granularity in terms of how we have to even think about trust, which is one of the themes of this project, right? So this allows for that. Now, when you start thinking about it, disaggregating it and unpackaging it, right? Then you also realize that, you know, when you're looking for or, or looking to address challenges such as it might be COVID or anything else, right? Uh, more often than not, you have a set of experts, right? At the top who pretty much, uh, you know, dictate how things get done. It's a, But on the other hand, you know, having been a researcher who sort of believes in sort of a sort of empirical grounding, so a lot of what we do. And when I say empirically grounding, this is not to say that the technology, the scientists who put it together have been sort of waving their hands. No, not at all. But in terms of the social consequences to believe why something will work, you do need to actually go there to the field to get you know, get a sense of how things are playing out. And I've been doing that in, for, for, for a large part of, I do that for a large part of my research and to see that kind of listening to the people who you think should benefit or will benefit and to see how it actually plays out across norms, across uh, various other social cleavages, I think is extremely important. And that's why I think this a project such as this is very important. Thank you. And and, and I suppose, Heidi, that's pretty clear why you were so insistent that Balaji join us uh, for this launch event. You as an anthropologist um, 
devoted to the art and the science of listening, I suppose, um, but looking at it through uh, through Balaji's uh, uh, conceptual framework. Well, what really impressed me about Balaji's work um, was the link to society. Um, it's one thing to look at trust in technology in the sense of you know how effective it is and if it works. And similarly with our experience with vaccines, you want to make sure they're safe and effective, number number one. But then, it, you know, it whether it works is really going to depend on the situation it lives in, how it plays out, whether people want it, you know, and and the rest is nothing to do with the product. It's about everything about it <laughs> around it. So that really struck me. And also, one of the one of the real aims of the global listing project is also to derive from people what we're calling a societal preparedness index, because a lot of the work out there around preparedness for not just pandemics, there's a lot of pandemic preparedness initiatives, but in, in the Global Listening Project, we're looking, about, looking at the experiences of society in the face of COVID as a crisis, and what can we learn to build societal cohesion and preparedness for another crisis, whatever it may be, whether it's a natural disaster, conflict, or other. So we're looking deeper than what the specific agent or cause of the crisis is. Um, and that issue of trying to move towards preparedness and cohesion really resonated with the work that Ology has been doing and understanding that you know society technology interface, along with the multiple I mean, technology also, you need policymakers to trust it and believe in it. You need um, many parts of society. Um, but usually uh, society and, and local people are the last ones to have a say in how it's used, when in fact, the reality is they should be some of the early ones because it could make you a more effective product. So anyway, that's a... And I think the other, just to, to frame it, the other big issue is that we're looking towards in the Global Listening Project is societal preparedness and cohesion as a fundamental part of security, human security, national security, global security. And that really is, is fundamental. And technology every day, the quickly evolving um, possibilities with technology, if if we don't get it right, it will be a huge security risk. And if we get it right, it can be a huge um, builder of security. So it's uh, Valentine's Day, February the 14th. Um, what are we launching today, Heidi? What, why is today so special, besides the obvious? Well, we're launching today in the context of uh, this week is the Munich Security Conference. Uh, Monday and the 12th was the launch of the Munich Security Report and their index, which is really important to have a look at. And also, I thought it was important of all the days in this week to pick Valentine's Day because the state of the world right now, frankly, needs a lot of love. So <laughs> I thought that was the perfect one to land on. 
And I uh, also, it, it just so resonated with sense of people's personal security, security in their community, and, and how that emotional fabric is so relevant. Can you tell us a bit about the 70 country study that's going up on our website today? Sure. Well, we did, we started the global listening work in six major metropolitan areas around the world, uh, Sao Paulo, New York, Abuja, Paris, Delhi, and Bangkok, just to pick different points in the world, cities that had very different experiences around COVID, to do a lot of focus groups, in-depth interviews, to hear from them what were their issues, what were their things that worked, things that didn't, what were the things that made them feel safe and made them feel scared. And from all of that, we tried to discern what were locally uh, specific cultural or political issues and what were common themes across those different settings. So from those common themes, we built um, a survey. We wanted to understand the scale of these issues across the world. And that we rolled out that in 70 countries in nationally representative samples, reaching over 70,000 people in multiple languages. And in that survey, um, what we're launching this week, uh, we've invested quite a bit in a very robust website where people can see the data from their country, can look at any other country, can look at the comparisons. So we're we're doing a kind of backwards approach to a, a typical launch, which would be a, a finished report. We're bringing the world along with us in one, sharing our data early. We don't know when the next crisis will be. We were encouraged by our international advisory board. Don't wait for the shiny report. Share your data as soon as you can. It's a resource. We never know when the next crisis will hit make it available to policymakers, to researchers, uh, to funders, to other, other people. So we're launching that. We're fully available to work with people who want to look at it and its implications. We've been already doing a series of roundtables in different settings with different policymakers around their country. This week, we looked very carefully um, at including Balaji and Prasada and, and others on the data we learned about India. We've done that in Tokyo, in New York, in Washington, in Singapore, uh, in Senegal, uh, and we'll be doing more of that. And then we're going to open the chapters of the book, as it were, in each month. This month, we're featuring security. Next month, February, uh, sorry, March, we'll be looking at the gender lens. And then we'll look at technology. And then we'll look at, in May, mental health. And then we'll be working towards um, the, a report that we'll release at the, the Summit of the Future uh, in September, which there will have uh, really the overall picture, including all the commentary that we've been gathering along the path. So that's this whole journey is being launched here on Valentine's Day towards uh, the Summit of the Future. And I mean, not only are you trailblazing in uh, confidence around vaccines and um, building trust um, for future crises preparedness, 
but you're totally upending the way people launch uh, reports and studies. I, I think it's fascinating. So to put you on the spot a bit, Heidi, are you able to give us a sense of what you feel are the top insights from the data that you've looked at already? What has surprised you and, and, and what has reassured or reaffirmed to you? Well, one thing that struck me is really 70 country, countries in the world that we covered or listened to, 70 very different stories, some common themes, but how they played out was quite different. And also we have a lot of subnational data so we could see variety within countries. But really th different things struck me in different countries and we're doing sense-making and feedback in these different countries. In the US, for instance, nine out of 10 men under 35 felt like the political leaders were listening to them and that they had voice. Only three out of 10 women over 35 felt that political leaders were listening to them and they had the voice. That's in the United States, which I found pretty shocking. That difference was quite, quite eye-opening. Uh, in Cameroon, 63% of the respondents said they regretted getting a COVID vaccine. And when I talked to colleagues from Cameroon, from Africa CDC and others, in Senegal also with the Pasteur Institute, what do you think of this data? They said, it could have been my grandmother. The fact that a number of people did get their vaccine, urged and pushed by others, but then after the fact felt like, well, maybe they didn't really need it. And maybe, well, what about all those longer term effects? And maybe I shouldn't have. I was really, that high amount I found a bit surprising. It was very varied in different countries. Vietnam, on the other hand, had the highest sense of relief after vaccination. So how do we get people to feel like, from a security perspective, um, it, relief <laughs> and a feel of protection and, and safety? Um, another thing that was really striking, we asked people about mental health. We asked in the context of COVID, did you uh, have any mental health issues like anxiety or depression, loneliness, uh, or a sense of hope? And part of the uh, survey work looks at people's emotions from anxiety, uh, fear, anger, uh, uh, hopefulness, empathy, and compassion, and looked at how those moods changed over the pandemic. That was an interesting uh, window, and that was different in different countries. Um, and we saw, for instance, some populations had a very different perception of how their country did versus how they did. Japan had very low public sense that their government did well, when in fact their government did extremely well when you measure it by the number of cases and, and COVID deaths. But that's not what the public felt. And in trying to get social cohesion, we want to get the public experience to be closer to the reality. So that kind of cohesion is fundamental to security, um, to national security and, and human security. Uh, and, and in India, it was interesting. We had um, some of the highest number of people with re reporting 
anxiety and and depression during COVID, um, more anxiety, I think. Um, and that surprised some people here, whereas in Senegal and Japan, they said they didn't have much, but the Ministry of Health would say, actually, we had higher number of suicides than usual. So we're also looking at how does the perception of publics compare to the technical story of how things went. We're also ta talking to a lot, a lot of colleagues. We want to get other people's reports, other people's information. We want this to kind of trigger uh, a co co coalition, I guess, of insights around these different topics um, to, to put the full story together. And that's why our logo is a puzzle piece, because we're trying to get the missing voices in the puzzle so we get a coherent picture. Uh, Balaji, how, how do you respond to that? Do, does, does that resonate with, uh, with the work that you have done um, over the years? And I, and, and I guess particularly this approach that the Global Listening Project has taken around to generating um, opinion research based um, senses of people's perceptions. Given the fast moving uh, flow of information and technology these days, um, is it possible to, to capture the moment correctly and uh, effectively so that policymakers uh, can act upon that data? Yes. <clears throat> I mean, Yes and no. So, sort of, uh, I'm probably hedging my bets there. But let me let me say what I what I really have in my mind. Yes, you do have a variety of new technologies that are you know keep coming. That flow is there. But so, in that sense, you know, the availability of these new technologies as tools to address some of these challenges that we face is a source of encouragement because quite often these are problems that we might call wicked problems that we've uh, where the target keeps moving. We haven't sort of had any, you know, half-decent solutions or, or ways of addressing them. So, you know, there's hope. However, we can't therefore assume that people will necessarily react to those technologies or new sort of offerings in ways that we envisage them in, say, the laboratory, right? Because often their social and personal circumstances have not kept up. And really, even for people who are coming up with these technologies, have social uh personal and economic circumstances don't sort of run with the flow of technology, right? We are sort of anchored in different ways in our own personal settings, right? So that's the reason why I think we really need to figure out how, uh, you know, these technologies uh, uh, play out in a very granular fashion across, which is why this comparative study and you know, in, by sort of disaggregating uh, different sections of the population whether it's, you know, by religion or caste or gender or race or whatever it is that you might sort of want to slice and dice the data, I think it's extremely important because we can't assume that the latest, you know, sorry for my using the word, the toy that we might have in terms of the technology is going to be the magic wand that is going to uh, help us do away or sort of see, uh, you know, uh, uh, get rid of these challenges that we've not had very little success with. It shouldn't be the sort of, we, you know, it, it has almost become like the last card we have. Oh, we haven't been able to deal with this. This is probably going to be it. So that's the, uh, that's how I sort of react to and, and, and uh, react to what Heidi just said. And there's a bit about social Super. cohesion. Maybe if there is time, I'll add to that later. Yeah, you can. Oh, we'll definitely come back to yeah. social cohesion. No question. <laughs> now, Prasada, 
you, like me, uh, well, you much more effectively than me, I guess, long time um, work in the HIV movement. Um, and I think an observation that you made to both Heidi and me um, during, uh, I think, the second shutdown um, uh, lockdown in India was that you saw the uh, HIV community that had been forced essentially to organize for itself um, uh, at the at at the depths of a, of a raging HIV epidemic in the country, but you saw it coming together and providing strength, resource, not only for the community uh, that it represented, but for the but for broader society. Uh, could you talk a bit about that? About HIV? About the lessons um, that the HIV community HIV. brought okay. yeah. to COVID. Sure. Uh, I think, so I have to go back about 20 years. And, uh, you know, things were much different at the time. Um, I think India also went through a phase of denial at the time, definitely. For about six years, I think we denied that there is a problem of HIV in India. It is a foreigner's disease, not so much as ours. But later on, I think government really picked up. And the response that uh, we have been able to put together um, I think it's one of the most comprehensive ones. Uh, at least I have seen in other parts of the world. Um, and the most important component of that is uh, was that the emphasis on prevention. I think again, even, that is something even now we are missing in a number of, uh, I would say, global and regional and country level uh, policy documentation. Even though it is there, but I think in practice it is not actually happening. I think, but India at the time put a huge amount of uh, emphasis and also resources on prevention, especially prevention among the key and vulnerable populations. So that ultimately is what gave us the results. And the involvement of the communities, right from the word go, I think the communities got organized very well. Uh, the sex workers, the injecting drug users, men who have sex with men, transgenders, one by one, they have been able to organize themselves. And initially I've seen, they were not even willing to listen. They were not even willing to get photographed. From that position, they could come within a period of five years to come and agitate for their rights and then take positions on the roads. This is a huge uh, transformation we have seen in India. I think that's because of this bottom-up approach that was followed in the project, empowerment of those people. Empowerment was one of the very important components of the prevention work that we did. I think that, that is something which stood out at the time as a part of HIV response. And as I said earlier, when I compare that with what happened in COVID, even though these communities were also the most affected during COVID response, hardly their voices were heard. In fact, the sex workers lost their livelihoods. They were, on the, they were completely starving, many of them. The others were not able to access even the minimum services that the government has given to them. Of course, vaccination was a different story. The communities organized themselves to see that vaccine reaches them. But then the communities didn't sit idle. They didn't wait for the government to respond. They organized themselves. And in Bangalore itself, I can quote, there's a project called Community Action Collaborative, which is a collaboration of about 350 organizations working on COVID in various capacities. They have been able to synergize their efforts, <clears throat> mobilize resources, and reach benefits to the communities including, you know, awareness about vaccination, where to go, how to register yourself for a vaccine, many of these things. 
That's how the communities got empowered of their own and without any help from the government. That is the big contrast you find between the HIV and COVID. And I wished, I think the government at some point of time should have realized this and then brought the voices of the communities to the fore. But unfortunately, it didn't happen. And I realized it is not only in India, in many countries. I think this is mm. absolutely a type of, um, as I said, a top-down type of response we had. But the positive side was, at least the governments have learned the lesson the hard way. Maybe I will come to the preparedness part later on. Maybe we'll discuss it. But I think essentially this is the difference I saw between the two. So this is a good moment to get into the concept then of trust and security that, that Heidi referred to at the start. And, and I guess the question, uh, I, I guess if I may, Heidi, for the two gents before coming to you is just how you define trust. And, and uh, Balaji, I, I wonder if this sort of gets us into your thoughts around uh, social cohesion. One of the things I have found absolutely fascinating about uh, Heidi's work in the Global Listening Project is that trust essentially seems to be the missing piece that enables governments to talk um, and engage with their citizenry um, in ways that will enable them to mount effective uh, responses, um, experts that actually want to help people. And so I just wonder how you see the uh, the role of trust uh, in building social cohesion. Yeah, <clears throat> I think there are two parts to this. One is, you know, as somebody who has studied and who sort of firmly believes in the role of institutions, I think you first and foremost need these kind of institutional structures that will allow you to generate trust. I mean, let's take a simple example in the sense that uh, do you have, for example, state agencies that are delivering, it might be vaccines, it might be education, etc., with a certain quality, right? Or do you much rather go to the private sector, right? For instance, in India, you know, we've had a growing shift from the public sector, state-run education system to the private sector, and that speaks very loudly, right? And in many instances, you have where you have... Uh, either state failure or because the private sector charging too much, you have the non-profit sector actually delivering a wide array of services, right? So you have this kind of institutional structure that you need for different kinds of areas. But then that in and of itself is not enough because then you need to see the specific practices through which those institutions are actually reproduced. So, you know, time after time, do the schools produce good results? What are the health, com health outcomes from certain clinics? Or what is it, or how is it that my water gets delivered? Or those sorts of things those kinds of practices on a daily basis through which citizens interact with those institutions or the faces of those institutions becomes very crucial to building trust because it's not a binary variable. It's not as though it is there or not there, but you have shades of that and then you keep, you see that being reinforced or being eroded over a period of time. Okay, So this is insofar as this question of trust is concerned. Now, as far as social cohesion itself is concerned, I would sort of uh, take a step back and tie it in to this, even this question of, you know, preparedness that we uh, talked about, or this question of security. Okay. See, if you take, for example, something like the uh, COVID, the pandemic, right? What is obvious is to say that it's not something that's local. It's just global in nature. So you have, you know, to take a sort of an, a framework of what economists would call, you know, if you, if, you, if you look at it in terms of different types of goods, this is what is called a public bad, 
in the sense it does not it does not mm-hmm. respect national boundaries now typically when you build infrastructure uh in for most of uh, you know which are which are provided as public goods it might be roads railways and so on and so forth they pretty much end with your national boundaries that's what governments take responsibility for and they attempt to deliver it could even be healthcare or schools and so on and so forth but when you have something like a, a pandemic that knows or respects no national boundaries right it just will travel wherever it, it you know it can go so what that really calls for is just like we have institutions to deliver public goods across countries we need to have global institutions that will bring about that kind of cohesion to deal with these public bads how do we mitigate these things right so we need new institutions and practices that are going to say we can deal with it not just or we we acknowledge that this is not just an indian problem or a brazilian problem or a problem of some other country but we need this kind of institutions that is going to and we even saw during the pandemic the disparities despite the availability of technology in terms of delivering these vaccines that were widely available but uh, i mean what were not widely available that that's what i should yeah. say sorry about that so i think these institutions are necessary so that you address these public bads and i it is through that that you look at cohesion as far as certain kinds of challenges are concerned at a global level right you build that cohesion you build that preparedness to building those institutions and you also therefore give ourselves collective security to know that tomorrow should such an event happen we got what it takes of course this it calls for a lot of political negotiation it is not something that we can simply sit and dictate from a table here or there and but if we don't do it i think we are setting ourselves up for trouble you know Prasada, I think what Balaji has just described is essentially what what you lived and worked through with the HIV epidemic. Um, you you could have been talking, Balaji, about HIV. Sure. It yeah. seems to yeah. me, um, no, and, and it strikes fact, me, Prasada, but... that that trust has probably been, um, and the building of trust has been something that has been very central to your career. Um, so, how do you see? the way in which governments and communities interact um around trust in the 21st century in this third decade of the 21st century yeah uh, thank you but before coming there the, to that i just want to respond to what uh, balaji has said about the international institutions you know that you need those institutions to see that you know we we sort of drive the agenda we have seen the experience of international institutions and their roles i think unless unless they are very well defined what they can do and what they cannot do you may end up with a lot of optimism around but not much happening at the country level we ultimately any international instrument you see there is always a very clause small clause hidden somewhere say that national authorities are ultimately responsible for implementing this particular uh, agenda or convention or whatever that means ultimately the buck stops with the countries you cannot go beyond that below that and then start you know implementing projects or telling people what to do you 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 have to you have to stop there and then that's where the nations and the national authorities need to be influenced advocated properly with the use of evidence and also offer up technological support and so international institutions when you look at it the two most important things they can do is evidence i think this is what the listening project has done the most important part is evidence this is where i think as you said rightly in hiv when we when india was in a denial mode 
it was still in internal mode when i joined the mm. first thing that we did was conduct a national level sentinel survey collecting blood samples from a large number of uh, hiv i mean general patients and also the so called um, uh, high risk patients also high risk uh, persons and we analyzed and we found that huge amount of uh, differential between the general population and these risk groups in terms of the prevalence of uh, hiv among them and when we aggregated the total number of hiv positive people in the country came to something like 3 million whereas the government was sub, uh, reporting a figure of about 90000 or so so that was the telling effect that had the evidence that we produced and then when it went to the then prime minister he said no this cannot happen we have to come out of this and then he himself made an open announcement uh, on the floor of the parliament that we are in a big problem we need to mount a big response scale up our response put more resources etc so so i said the 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 power of evidence and how do you can how you can bring it to the countries how you can help the countries to generate that evidence and also global level advocacy i think these are the two things what international institutions and also internet global um, initiatives like this can do but if you look at the implementation part the country and the national authority has a huge role to play if you can't sensitize them about the importance of what need to be done you just the, the it stops there that's where i think we will we were able to successfully do it in the case of hiv but in covid of course it's a different story countries have responded mm-hmm. differently because they saw a huge amount of emergency some countries immediately jumped into the into the response some countries took time some countries denied for some time like even united states but sometimes i think there is a bit of a denial of the epidemic but at least mercifully in india i would say that uh, the government listened to science listened to good evidence i think because of that we have been able to get a good response the jarring note was of course the 21 day lockout which caused immeasurable uh, misery to people plus of employment etc and also the lack of a very critical component in the response that is social support again you know where the trust part comes in if you just if government thinks that i'll just give you a vaccine and okay you can go home i forget about you that is not enough you need to see that what follow up need to be done how the income opportunities of those people got eroded because of covid and what need to be done to bring it back that didn't happen some or the other and even if it happened it happened in a very 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 minor scale uh where mm-hmm. again the the trust part came in very heavily and then i think um, uh i would say that the communities especially uh they trust in the effectiveness of the government to come to the rescue has been seriously eroded sobering but i i i guess on the one hand heidi we have uh the emergence of global bads and and balagia i'm definitely going to use that that is brilliant um sure. and then on the other hand the need for national and indeed local actions which is you know good and bad what does this say to you about trust particularly in the context of human security well i was as valerie was talking i was thinking the other thing that goes across borders is technology and what's in technology and the sentiments shared on technology and the 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 viral um emotions that went around the world and that's something that we really need to 
to look at, to focus on, to get a handle on, uh, because that can undermine any efforts. And it can also be an incredible asset, again, um, and to security, but to any response. One of the things that, um, one of the biggest, biggest conspiracies that was in every country was that there was some global government somewhere controlling the world. This was too big. There were too many people being asked to do the same thing. It didn't make sense. This was something that somebody made up somewhere. And some people, I heard a number of totally different people in different settings, from taxi drivers in one country to a shopkeeper in another to someone else who was you know, very educated, um, say, you know, the vaccine's not for me. Not because they didn't believe COVID was serious. They knew people who had died. It wasn't because they had a real particular issue with their government. It was the global government. And right now, the world is having a difficult time getting coherence and agreement on a pandemic treaty. They're struggling. And what's that about? And I think that from the public perspective, there's a lot of anxiety about that because people, even though the UN and other global entities can only give guidance, and as, as uh, Prasada rightly said, every country has, a, has their national sovereignty. They can get global guidance, but these things and recommendations do not become law or policy unless a country endorses it. But to have some global coherence is really crucial in these global crises. So um, I just come back to the, the other issue and why technology and the nature of technology. Technology is a hugely vast term. You can be talking about social media and you can be talking about AI and its biggest sorts. You can be talking about diagnostics. And I mean, there's a lot. So we have to be a bit more granular in that. But the other thing that I was thinking about, and this came up in a lot of our questions on trust in terms of who people turn to for support during COVID, from religious leaders to government, national and local to, to media, you know, national or local TV or radio, or were their employers. And many employers in the world these days are global institutions. And mm. actually, they played a huge role in supporting people. And a number of people in our survey said that actually they helped them much more than the government. My employer, um, my, my wife's employer helped our family and our neighborhood because a lot of us work at that company. So I think we can't underestimate the importance of private sector and particularly international business that is in principle apolitical, which is another thing, because one of the problems and challenges with government, look at the United States, and there's a number of countries that are hugely polarized. And when guidance comes, when you said, do you trust your leader? Well, some said they trusted their leader, but he wasn't in the office of the president. And it was the opposition leader. And so, you know, I think we really need a very diverse in it. If we want to get any sense of security, we need a mix because not everyone is going to follow the same thing all the time. They have their, so we're going to, their trusted group or entity. And we need to make sure that we're trying to get 
multiplicity of factors that build a stronger fabric of social cohesion because it's not going to be the same threads, as it were, across the whole fabric, but we need to go with one of the local strongest threads of trust to build that patchwork of global blanket, like the, like the HIV blanket, the AIDS blanket, uh, around the world. And I think we touched on some of these issues earlier this week when we did a roundtable, and I just want to thank, before we wrap up, the, the Bangalore Science Gallery that hosted our first India roundtable. And really, I, that's where I had the opportunity to meet Alaji and Prasada joined us, and we had a few other fantastic um, uh, researchers and scientists here uh, in, in Bangalore, but also networked across India, and I'm just thrilled to have this opportunity uh, here. I mean, it was great that you raised the India Roundtable, because that's where I wanted to go next. Um, and, and, and I guess, um, Prasada, if I could start with you, um, you know, you You've you've seen the uh, the data coming out of the the survey, and particularly as it relates to to India. Um, but I guess the question is: Do you feel that India is in the process, like perhaps a number of other countries, of forgetting about COVID? And and what lessons do you think the political class have taken from the pandemic for defending national security? Well, I think one uh, reason why, uh, one of the reasons rather, why I joined the Global Listening Project was <clears throat> to see that, you know, as countries start forgetting about uh, COVID, this is one way of reminding them, you know, that what happened at the time and what were the responses. So bringing it back to the public memory, you know, very important. So I think that's, that's one of the important, um, uh, I would say that offshoots of the Global Listening Projects. But coming to India and the COVID response, I, can't, I don't think we can say in black and white that the COVID has been forgotten and, um, you know, is business as usual, etc. Because there are certain obvious advantages that the country derived in terms of technology, in terms of the infrastructure, in terms of the vaccines, and also in terms of the government's uh, thinking on Preparedness, pandemic preparedness. See, we have in India what is called a National Disaster Response Agency, NDRA it's called. And uh, when you look at the work they do, they were focused more on natural calamities, mm -hmm. serious law and order situations, etc. I think they were handling those things. But a public health emergency, like what we saw in COVID, they were not prepared for it because they never thought that is a virus, an invisible virus, can 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 sort of cause this sort of a huge damage to to the, the people's lives and to the GDP of our countries, etc. But so everybody was taken by surprise. So we needed a totally different type of response uh, when it came to COVID. I think the government um, rightly, I think, handed it over to the uh, Indian Council of Medical Research because they wanted to depend upon evidence, depend upon science. Uh, to see that the response is done properly, and also the the data that has come from the field, where exactly uh, the epidemic is is, is moving, uh, so all those things have come up. 
Oh, I would say that those things stayed on. I mean, we 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 now have a national disaster preparedness plan for emergencies like this, public health emergencies. Earlier, we, it wasn't there. Then, in terms of the public health infrastructure, you know, in India, oxygen concentrators or oxygen mini oxygen plants were not known earlier. We used to have big hospitals having big oxygen plants, but a public, a primary health center or a secondary health center. They had to depend upon the cylinders for oxygen. Today, I think thousands of mini oxygen plants have come in hospitals, so that they don't have to depend upon supply from somewhere else. But this is completely because of COVID. Similarly, mm -hmm. if you want to do um, uh, what do you call the the the, pub, the pathological labs, which do that the sequencing, the uh, 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 sequencing, etc. Earlier, there used to be maybe four or five in the entire country. Today, almost a, a state probably has got 20, 30 such labs. They have been created and they are still functioning. So now any new virus that comes in, I think within a few days, we'll be able to say that is it a new virus or is it something which is old one which has emerged. So this sort of a technical capacity uh, that has been built in mm -hmm. the country, I think that's really stayed on with us. We are not forgotten that. But what has been forgotten, of course, is that yes, we need to invest in health, we need to invest in public health, and we need to invest in preventive health. I think that still needs to happen in a large way. I mean, it's happening, no doubt, but I, I don't think the budgets that are available to public health authorities, uh, they match the requirements to see that some of these public health emergencies can be met. Balaji, could we go back then to the the global perspective, good and bad? Um, I think one of the things that we all learned through COVID um, is that India truly is a global power, whether it's the production of vaccines, the biotechnology uh, industry that that really is the drug maker for the world, the vaccine maker for the world as well, but also technology. Um, and I just wonder, do you think India understands and um, is ready to take up uh, a regional and indeed global uh, mantle to help prepare for future crises? That's, that's, a, that, that, that's a very hard question, both in terms of its scope and in terms of the time frame <laughs> that you're sort of asking, you know, reach, you know the global mantle for the future. Because in the long run, like John Maynard Keynes said, we're all dead. <laughs> but, but, but more seriously, I think you used the term technology, you said India, some, you, I think you used the term technology leader, and then you said we're the drug maker to the world or provides of vaccines. All that is true, except that I think, you know, like Heidi pointed out, technology is a very vast term. And I think, you know, we do well in certain areas, like, for example, you know, we max, whether it's making vaccines or, you know, or, or generic drugs, or maybe even putting up, you know, sending up a, a satellite to the moon and so on. Yes, we, we do, uh, I mean, a, a vehicle to the moon, we, we do certain things very well. Uh, we're also the world's largest exporter of software services, etc. But that does not, so there are specific areas. I think this is too broad a question if you ask me in the sense that we have to focus this on very specific areas. And because you can point to just as many areas of technology where we have not yet been able to deliver in a very, you know, in, in, in mm. things that people take for granted in many other parts of the world, right? Are we able to deliver clean water 
to vast sections of our population, right? That's something we haven't done yet. Now, it's partly technology, but technology by itself means very little unless you have certain institutional mechanisms. And I can't sort of, I sound probably like a broken record, but you need to have those mechanisms, the social mechanisms that can appropriate those technologies and then figure out how to ensure that vast segments of the population get it. So it's even if you did have that technology, you could well be like a, a lab or in a sort of a, a situation where it's on the shelf, it's glittering, but then it's not usable by many sections of population. Yeah. So it really is, is more than a question of having the technology. So whether we want to meet the needs of our own population, of our own citizens, or take on a global or re regional mantle, I think what really counts in the final analysis is when it comes to, you know, I'm here's where, you know, I'm sure somebody like Mr. Prasad Rao, who's been at the sort of, on, on, shall we say, at the forefront of delivering these things as a policymaker and so on, will appreciate that. You know, it's all good for us to say what we want, but do we have the, the mechanisms, the wherewithal? The availability of certain forms of technology, particularly digital technology, has made certain things easier, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Right? Because there's, you know, just to let me close with yeah. one, uh, this one uh, uh, sort of sentence and anecdote, you know, a few years ago, a well-known American journalist wrote the book, The World is Flat, right? But that had a very specific connotation. It wasn't that everybody was sort of getting along very well. No, it's just that certain forms of technologies were, became available, which made India a software, you know, a big software exporter. But nevertheless, has a vast majority of the population benefited from those exports? No, it's still an enclave, right? So we have to sort of think about it, step back and think about these things not just in technology as technology, but as technology as socially embedded mechanisms or processes. Well, somebody has said and you have to democratize great... technology. Oops. That's a good word I heard. Yeah. And so what a great way, Balaji, to get us to to some final comments from, from Heidi, because we're getting to the top of the hour. And I confess that in preparing for this um, launch event, um, I explored some of the new frontiers of technology, um, some of the artificial intelligence apps, and uh, even went as far as to see if we could get some questions uh, from uh, ChatGPT or Proximity uh, to put to Heidi. And there is one, Heidi, which I think I'd like to put to you, which I think is a really nice way of, of wrapping up this session. Uh, and excuse me if I quote from Proximity. Here we go. Ask Professor Larson, what behavior leads to better crisis preparation? Either leaders who demonstrate greater transparency and greater information, or leaders who tightly control what when and how information is shared. <laughs> Tricky one, yeah. <laughs> well, if we turn to our data, the thing that every country around the world prioritized in terms of what they wanted to, from government was more than anything, honesty, transparency, consistency. That was above a lot of other things, including their role at community level that was much lower. What they wanted from government, just be clear, make a decision. We'll follow a top-down decision if you explain why. And you explain why these people are getting this before we are. We'll accept that, but just explain why. 
Um, that's what people, so I, Mr. Proximity, I'd go for um, the honest transparency. Although with the caveat that in times of crisis, you do need a little bit of command and control. And people accepted that. Everyone we talked to said, we know in a crisis, especially with something new that is unfamiliar, we need someone to guide us. But they need to make that guidance relevant to our realities, our situation, if we can follow that. And presumably the only way we can do that is if we have trust in our authorities. And mutual trust. I think that's another well, important thing. It's not just trust up. It's trust by national authorities. And this is where Sweden, for instance, not to start a new conversation, but um, Sweden, as many people know, were less strict in imposing forcing certain regulation, but said to the public, these are the measures we think and our evidence is showing is important to protect you. But we trust you to take on and and respect those. We're not going to make it a law. We're not going to prevent you from going to places you know, within the country, but we're going to trust you. Now, they had more deaths than Norway, for instance, which was stricter, it's many, and many other European countries were stricter. But at the end of the day, what was interesting is that when we looked at trust in government, they ended up with higher trust because the government, they felt a sense that the government had trust in their people. So, it's a, so I think this issue of mutual trust, both mutual trust among peers, family, community, um, but also building and working towards mutual trust between those who govern, govern and make the policies and those who are expected to implement it will have a much more secure and safe society. Well, thank you very much. And what a great way to wrap up this session. Um, Balaji Prasada, thank you so much for joining us. And I, I know, Heidi, that this is the start of a set of conversations the Global Listening Project is going to have. Um, thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are around the world. You can find out more about the Global Listening Project at our website, global-listening.org. And there you can find, in a Power BI form, the data that Heidi has been referring to. So with that, Thank you again very much. And as we say on a Shot in the Arm podcast, have a great week and a safe week, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. <laughs>